BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the situation in Afghanistan with an increasingly desperate humanitarian situation, a crippling drought, and deepening oppression of women and girls. In recent weeks, the Taliban have abandoned any appearance of moderation and barred girls from attending secondary school, ordered women to cover themselves from head to toe, and restricted their ability to work or move freely. We look at the spiraling challenges before the Afghan people after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When they seized power in August, the Taliban assured the international community that women would not lose their rights in Afghanistan. The opposite has been true. Women say they're being erased from public life. Girls no longer have access to education beyond sixth grade. Women are restricted from working outside the home. They can only travel with a male, quote, guardian. More recently, the Taliban has decreed that women should be covered from head to toe in public. Joining us to talk about the assault on women's rights and the deepening humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan are Shabana Basij Rasak, co-founder and president of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. Basij Rasak is also a contributing opinion writer for the Washington Post. Shabana, so glad to have you on. Shabana, are you with us? Yes, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you on. And also, Joseph Azam is with us, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonprofit working to raise awareness of the issues facing Afghanistan and Afghan refugees. Joseph Azam, glad to have you on as well. Thank you, Mina. So I mentioned the spiraling humanitarian crisis, and I want to ask both of you what you've heard recently about life in Afghanistan, what it's like for people there living day to day right now. And I'll start with you, Joseph. Sure. Thanks, Mina. I mean, uh, the situation's dire. 
right? The economy is in a spiral. Uh, people are lacking access to basic services. Um, around 70% of households don't have enough income to support their basic food needs or non-food needs. Um, and the, the economy's in collapse, right? And so that has an extremely um, difficult and um, problematic impact on, on Afghans across the country. Um, so what we're hearing is that um, people are desperate. Um, people are taking extreme measures to respond to extreme hardship. Um, and there is no, um, there's no end in sight. What do you mean by extreme measures? I mean, I mean, a good example, right? Some, some number of weeks ago, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about a family selling uh, one of their child's organs, right, to pay a, a couple thousand dollar debt. Um, to me, that, that is representative of the level of desperation and the level of fear uh, and the loss of hope, right, that Afghans are experiencing. So it's that sort of um, mentality that's setting in, unfortunately. Wow. Um, Shabana, what about you? What have you been hearing? Uh, yes, uh, to add to what uh, Joseph just uh, mentioned, um, I'm in touch with uh, a lot of Afghans, especially Afghan families uh, who are incredibly concerned about their daughter's education. Um, the situation for women and girls are particularly um, um, difficult. Uh, women are not allowed to um, work outside the home. Girls are banned from accessing education at secondary school uh, level. Um, the Taliban have uh, recently um, added um, additional restrictions on women, um, discouraging women from uh, going outside the home uh, unless it's incredibly necessary. Um, and obviously, you uh, you know, you're um, also interpreting uh, what is necessary under the Taliban interpretation. Um, women are um, required to wear um, a burqa or cover themselves head to toe. Um, so th there are additional restrictions uh, posed on people. But um, um, to offer an additional story to what uh, Joseph just mentioned, uh, um, like you mentioned, I run a boarding school for girls um, currently operating outside of Afghanistan in Rwanda, and we have um, opened our admission season for the next academic year. And uh, we have already received more than uh, 90 um, applications from Afghans uh, across, across the world uh, from more than seven different countries. And I hear um, stories after stories of um, Afghan families who have uh, left Afghanistan mainly to be able to um, uh, provide um, continuity of learning for their daughters. Um, so they have left Afghanistan in the hopes that their daughter would be able to continue to receive an education. And in most cases, unfortunately, so far, their daughters haven't succeeded in uh, enrolling in schools. Um, uh, I hear stories after stories of I've come to, I won't mention uh, any country specifically, but the Afghan family, would, uh, the applicant would mention that I've come to an ex country um, and uh, the policy is that they are not registering new Afghan refugees. And as a result, uh, I'm not enrolled in school still, and they are incredibly hopeful that they will be able to uh, enroll in a school like Sola. Uh, simultaneously, I'm hearing a lot of um, um, you know, stories from inside Afghanistan. In fact, many uh, girls and their families have reached out to me directly um, asking if there is a chance for them to apply, even though they're uh, inside Afghanistan. Um, I have uh, received calls from fathers who have uh, told me that they are willing to become refugees in a neighboring country in order to make their daughters eligible for admission 
at Sola. So this is incredibly heartbreaking to think that um, in in today's um, uh, you know Afghanistan, um, there are families who are willing to uproot themselves um, to uh, assume an incredibly harsh identity that of a refugee simply to be able to offer an educational opportunity for their daughters. Hmm. Joseph Azam, how did it get so bad in the last nine months? How much has changed since the U.S. withdrew? A lot. I mean, I think a big part of it has to do with the fact that Afghanistan has traditionally been incredibly aid-dependent, right? And so international aid has dwindled, and it's caused a major disruption to to life every day for everyday people, right? Um, People have stopped investing, um, NGOs themselves, I think I saw a World Bank figure that around 85% of them uh, who are providing essential services um, are unable to transfer funds from overseas, right, to operate. And so the entire infrastructure, right, Afghan civil society, foreign investment, the, the NGO sector has collapsed, right? And so those were the lifelines for the Afghan people, right, for healthcare, education, um, you know, food, right, energy, just the, the basics of life. And all that's been cut off. Uh, and, and it happened very quickly. And it's getting worse. So um, so I, I think, you know, sort of the rug was pulled out from under about 40 million people overnight. Right. And we're seeing the, the impact of that. I was so struck by the statistic that 80% of the economic budget of Afghanistan was foreign aid. And right now, of course, the U.S. has frozen their assets, the, they are not communicating, they're not recognizing the Taliban's leadership. So what kind of influence does the U.S. have? Does the U.S. have a conduit through which they speak to the Taliban? Sure. I mean, two, two quick points. I mean, I think the actual figure to focus on is $9.2 billion, right? And that's all the a- assets overseas, right, that, that are currently frozen. Uh, that's a significant difference. Uh, and the U.S. actually is speaking with the Taliban. Right. Our foundation met with Tom West, who's uh, President Biden's special representative for Afghanistan, a couple of weeks ago in D.C. And we had a very open conversation with him and both directly and through conduits in places like Qatar, uh, Pakistan and elsewhere. Uh, we are in communication with the Taliban. Um, now, how fruitful that communication is, is obviously up for debate. Right. I think there have been some very significant challenges, but those lines are open. Right. And so I think when it comes to accepting realities. We have to accept the fact that we are actually talking to them, and we probably have more leverage uh, than we're letting on. Uh, Shabana, one of the things that uh, I think it was a New Yorker piece in January noted is that the freezing of assets has actually given the Taliban a PR win and Afghans seem more angry at the U.S. than they are at the Taliban. Would you agree with that? And do you think that this this freezing of assets, this very limited interaction with the Taliban is a strategy that should continue because I imagine it makes it so much harder to also then negotiate around women's rights. Well, uh, on the on the flip side, uh, it seems like Taliban are also using, um, you know, women's uh, rights and girls' access uh, to education, um, all of which are um, quite permissible under under Islam. Um, so they really are um, using that as a leverage um, for negotiation as well. And, mm. and people in Afghanistan are noticing that women in particular are noticing that um, you have incredibly brave women uh, who are pouring into the streets of uh, Afghanistan, not just Kabul city, across the country, 
um, uh, and being quite strategic about demanding their Islamic right to um, uh, access to work, to um, education. Um, and quite honestly, um, um, Taliban uh, don't have a, a logical reason uh, to counter to counter these demands, uh, and uh, the only the only thing they have done uh, is to resort to violence and um, you know severe punishment of uh, protesters and their families and uh, threatening them. Uh, you know you have you have seen uh, stories after stories of um, uh, young women uh, protesters who um, have uh, disappeared, um, their families uh, punished, um, dead bodies uh, appearing in in uh, dumpsters and. Um, you know, there's there is real um, lack of uh, rule of law in this case, and um, and people are uh, incredibly frightened. One of the things that is important for me to mention and highlight uh, is, um, especially as a as a Pashtun woman, is that uh, life under the Taliban regime for non-Pashtuns is incredibly difficult um, for our minority groups, um, especially so. Um, and uh, this is all very troubling for all of us uh, Afghans and. Um, you know, um, we need to be able to, in all of these, what it, what is up for negotiation and what is a good leverage point, um, we need to make we need to be able to stay focused and um, keep the pressure points on uh, Taliban um, uh, to make sure that there there are no compromises on um, some of the real important issues such as girls' access to education, women's uh, access to um, the public sphere, um, they should really um, uh, be non-negotiable, in my opinion. Well, and a similar question to you, Joseph, we're coming up on a break here, but just in terms of the policy and the approach right now that the U.S. has taken to the Taliban, do you think that this needs to remain the approach or something has to change? I think that um, there's a big difference between recognizing uh, and normalizing um, constructively towards, you know, easing suffering. And so I think to the extent that the U.S. has tried to, um, you know, do the, do the uh, former rights or withholding recognition, that's not really working, right? So I think there needs to be more of a focus on problem solving, right, on working with the Taliban on how to deliver humanitarian relief uh, and, and finding things that they agree on, right? I mean, Shabana mentioned the, the issue of um, women being erased and people leaving the country. Uh, and the loss of human capital is one of those things that, um, you know, the two countries can work on together. Joseph is on board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, Shabana Basij Rasi, co-founder and president of SOLA. We'll have more with them after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. The U.S.'s collective student loan debt is over $1.5 trillion. What that means for many of us depends on how we pay it back, unless we won't have to. Amid a national debate on student loan forgiveness, we want to know, how have student loans affected your life? Would you be doing something different if you didn't have student debt? You can email forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail ahead of the show at 415-553-3300. That's 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking about the current conditions in Afghanistan with Joseph Azam of the Afghan American Foundation, Shabana Basij Rasak, as well of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about the situation in Afghanistan? Do you have family there? How are they coping with life under the Taliban? Email address is forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Shabana, I want to go a little deeper into the situation that you outlined that women and girls are facing. First of all, as we've said, it's basically teenage girls who are being kept out of schools. Why specifically has the focus been on girls older than sixth grade? Well, um, according to the Taliban, um, uh, girls past uh, puberty um, should not be um, allowed to go to school. But uh, at the same time, the argument really doesn't make sense for so many of us because um, uh, girls uh, are allowed to go to university. So I'm not sure at what point uh, are they uh, are they you know going to uh, think about the gap between uh, girls reaching sixth grade versus being able to attend university. Um, what we are anticipating is simply um, the uh, transitioning off of you know, girls attending university at all. Because if you don't have um, girls graduating high school, how are they going to be able to go to university? Right. They could continue to claim that we're not, we're not um, you know, stopping girls from pursuing higher education, uh, but their policies are. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense, um, and uh, it's quite troubling for, for so many of us, uh, especially um, who, we have worked so hard uh, in, in the past 20 years alone um, to uh, make significant progress uh, in terms of girls' access to education um, and to be in a situation right now to see uh, so much of that progress uh, being um, you know, uh, taken away and uh, undone is very troubling. Yes. And then we have since, of course, seen that uh, women are not allowed to travel without a male relative with them, or mm -hmm. they call them male guardians. Recently this month, uh, the Taliban mm -hmm. decreed that women needed to cover from head to toe and recommended, or I don't know if they required the blue burqa, but I, I do know that women do wear the burqa or otherwise cover their faces, particularly in the south and mm -hmm. rural parts of Afghanistan. But it, the, the lack of choice has been something that has caused women to say that they are being erased. And then, of course, just last weekend, we heard that um, TV presenters, female TV anchors cannot have to cover their faces as well. In terms of how this is enforced, you've written in the Washington Post that in the 90s when the Taliban were last in power, they would beat 
women in the street if they were not sufficiently modest. You've noted that this time the Taliban has changed how it's enforcing the rule. Can you talk about the difference now? How is it being enforced? Mm -hmm. Well, they've become far more sophisticated in how they're enforcing their own rules. Um, I assume they have seen the incredibly negative um, uh, PR they have received by um, directly um, punishing women, especially in in, in the public um, over the years. And um, what they have done is they have outsourced that um, to to the men. Um, uh, in in um, uh, across the country, um, so what essentially is happening right now is um, uh, a woman is uh, being controlled uh, by by the men in her life, according to Taliban. What they are what they are saying now is that if a woman does not obey the Taliban rules in terms of uh, covering, not appearing uh, in the public without a male. Uh, chaperone, etc. That the punishment is going to be uh, for for the men in her family. Um, they are going to receive a warning, and um, you know, uh, even possibly um, go to jail for not controlling the women in their lives. Um, what 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 is so incredibly troubling about this is what this will do for the young men in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we have we have seen uh, always generational approach um, to directing men in Afghanistan in a certain way. Uh, we have seen it um, in the in the 70s when Afghan men were encouraged to become freedom fighters. And that was done through a curriculum um, in an effort to fight the Soviets and communism. Um, and what that ended up doing is encouraged uh, men um, to fight, to pick up guns. And with that came violence um, towards women. So there is no surprise um, that uh, some of these policies have uh, deeply impacted Afghan women in one way or another. Um, and in today's Afghanistan, young men are being taught um, that their sole responsibility is to control the women in their lives, whether that's their mothers or sisters or uh, wives. So they're institutionalizing control of women at the family level. And you've really mm-hmm. ruminated on just the generational effect this can have. We're talking Absolutely. With it's, yeah. going to, it's going to be much harder, um, uh, even more work for, for all of us uh, in Afghanistan, for Afghan women, for Afghan men, um, to undo um, the effects, just like it's going to take, uh, uh, you know, a generation to to change the mentality of young men to see it, how they see women in their lives. It's going to take even longer to undo um, a lot of that. Well, I want to bring into the conversation now Mary Akrami, former executive director of the Afghan Women's Network based in Kabul, Akrami evacuated from the country in August 2021 and has resettled in the D.C. area. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It is a great privilege to be here, and it was nice to hear from Shabana Zan and Sir Joseph as well. Yes, yes, it is. And and Mary, it's nice to hear from you. I understand in 2019, in your capacity as the executive executive director of the Afghan Women's Network, that you met with the Taliban in Doha. This was part of the peace negotiations around the U.S. withdrawal 
What did the Taliban say then about how they would treat women and girls? What was that meeting like? Oh, uh, actually, like uh, in our uh, meetings, which was the the purpose of that meeting was that we should just talk and hear from each other. And there was no more um, chance to have further discussion. But uh, we have our own observation from that time. And that, that was like difficult to say that the Taliban has changed because the problem was like uh, they, they never have gave us chance that the, the people of Afghanistan and to the women of Afghanistan to talk with them like deep and to hear and to analyze. But the problem is that now that we see like, yeah, the Taliban have, have, have not been changed, unfortunately, but in that time that they try to show, because that was part of, as my understanding, part of the game, like that they wanted to show and they wanted to attract and to have more uh, support or have more attention from the international community. And beside that, the international community has well, unfortunately, play a very ugly uh, game on that time that they also gave a lot of platform to the Taliban that they also have gave like more space to the Taliban and that's why that unfortunately there was no more chance for us to to see and to have more further discussion and right now what you are seeing and that is that's, it's not something new for us to see yes. and we were not expecting more from the Taliban because that the expectation was something different that but unfortunately. I, I really, I'm speechless, speechless and I, I, I don't know what to say. Yes. Uh, and so you are not surprised that they have reneged on their quote-unquote promises or whatever face they put forward in 2019. And Shabana is noting that women have still been trying to protest. Noel tweets, could someone explain how economic sanctions are helping Afghan women and girls? I imagine that the catastrophic economic situation, the humanitarian conditions, are really affecting the efforts of women to be able to fight for their rights, to to try to fight against this oppression, Mary. You know, like, Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, it's it's really, really difficult to say, but uh, this is the agri-reality. The woman issue is a political issue, as always in Afghanistan, since 40 years. And particularly during the last 20 years, the women of Afghanistan have struggled a lot. And still that we are struggling. This is not something new for us that, that we are uh, struggling and we are fighting for this, all these uh, challenges. But the main problem is right now, which is really make us more, more disappointed. Uh, that was actually was planned. If they wanted to bring the Taliban, that was planned. But unfortunately, seeing the situation and the condition of women and the people of Afghanistan, this is really heartbroken. And this is really, it's, uh, it's really no justification. That, that no one have any justification in that regard, that now we just see that, oh, what is going, why the Taliban is doing, but unfortunately the main trouble and the main challenge that right now we see, uh, again, I'm sorry to say that the international community, they didn't play their role in a good way. They mm -hmm. still like wanted to just say, and right now we are talking, talking as even for us, it's easy. You're seeing all these scenes in a TV or any reports, it's easy, but it's not easy for the people of Afghanistan. If we are inside or if we are outside, if we are outside Afghanistan, most of our families, most of our relatives, most of our colleagues, most 
just as a humans, all women that we, we call ourselves like as a woman's leader for the last 20 years that we were on the front line and we left everything behind. And right now, beside all this restriction that the others that uh, we see like the humanitarian challenges, the starvation and the everything that this is really not easy for the women of Afghanistan to to come out from all this situation. This mm-hmm. is not responsibility. I don't see that, that this is the responsibility of the Taliban. Definitely that is their responsibility. But the main challenges now I see and the irresponsibility of the international community in regards to the people of Afghanistan and in regards to all nation of Afghanistan and particularly to the women of Afghanistan, that mm-hmm. is really, really most painful for all of us. The international community and its failures. Mary Akrami, former executive director of the Afghan Women's Network, thank you so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Let me go to Ertha in Arinda. Hi, Ertha. Hello. Thank you. Um, I am really concerned about the enormous amount of um, funds that are being um, frozen uh, here, and I understand in other countries. What can be done about that? I understand we wouldn't want to just give it outright. Well, I, you know, with the corruption and whatever that could happen, but that money belongs to the people mm. of Afghanistan. Ertha, thanks for that point. I just want to read this listener's comment on the other side. It appears a sister writes that Taliban knows and have known what their government needs to do to open the flow of aid and the restoration of frozen funds, keep their promises as to the treatment of and opportunities for women, among other commitments. The U.S. and the world should not surrender, holding the Taliban responsible and accountable for the starvation and suffering of their people. The world must consistently place accountability solely with the Taliban and not start giving them a, quote, free pass or nothing will change. So Joseph Azam, let me turn to you. What is the U.S.'s obligation to the people of Afghanistan? We're hearing some different perspectives here from both Eartha and this listener. Well, Mina, we have had four presidents, uh, 800,000 service members, um, and, and you know scores of people uh, who've worked in civil society over 20 years um, go through Afghanistan. Right. And at this point, I think that the U.S. has an obligation to finish the job. Um, I absolutely agree. And many of us do that the Taliban should not be emboldened. But the people that suffer in this tug of war between the Taliban and the U.S. and the international community are the people of Afghanistan. Um, Sanctions have have been in place on the Taliban since the late 1980s and early 1990s. In spite of that, they were able to ascend to power. They were able to amass arms. They were able to basically do whatever was necessary to overtake a country of 40 million people. And so I think that this is a moment for us to reckon with our existing approaches, right? And understand that our conception of power and our conception of influence over the Taliban perhaps needs to be revisited. Hmm. And I think the point, uh, Mina, around the frozen funds is really important, right? Because um, what people don't understand is that is the money that the government of Afghanistan needs to use to make sure it could prop up its economy. And so um, there are a lot of things that can be done, right? It's Options are being explored every day, both within the government and outside. Uh, but I think more than anything, there has to be a mechanism for the central bank to be stood up, for there to be some sort of independence established by the Taliban, and for there to be a recognition that that is okay by the international community uh, to start funds flowing again. So Joseph, how much... Leverage does the U.S. have? What 
levers can it pull? There are no troops on the ground. The American people don't seem interested in sending troops back. They're focused on problems domestically. They're focused on Ukraine. What can be done? A lot can be done. And I think one of the greatest tricks that maybe our government has played on us in this situation is to tell us that its hands are tied. And I refuse to accept that that's the case for the world's most powerful country. Mm. Um, directly, the U.S. has leverage in terms of you know financial aid. It has leverage in terms of its ability to influence players in the region like Pakistan, uh, India, and China. It has the ability to influence um, some of the Taliban's greatest patrons and supporters, right, uh, in Qatar and elsewhere in the Middle East. I mean, these are our realities. And so there is a lot of leverage and there's a lot of opportunity to find solutions for the very basic and urgent problems facing um, facing Afghans. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the American public needs to sort of look past the initial, you know, we can't do two things at once that we're hearing with regard to Ukraine, for example, and recognize that this is an obligation that we established over the course of decades. And so we can't sort of walk away from it overnight. Shabana, you have also noted that this is a moment for the Muslim world to take a stand. What do you mean by that? What do you want to see happen? Um, you know, uh, the, the, they can equally uh, call on Taliban uh, to um, uh, stop using uh, Islam as an excuse to uh, ban uh, certain rights uh, for Afghan people, Afghan girls, women, and and the general public. Uh, when when Taliban use Islam as an excuse to um, uh, stop women from um, having uh, holding or holding public office or, or girls from accessing secondary school or um, being in school beyond uh, the age of puberty, um, the the Muslim world, the the um, Muslim majority countries and nations can. Uh, easily um, uh, raise their voice and uh, express that that's not that's not what's happening in most of those countries. And we have many Muslim majority countries that that could really um, uh, influence this. The good news is that there are um, some um, Muslim scholars uh, in Afghanistan and outside of Afghanistan that have called called out Taliban um, considering their rulings and Islamic. But that pressure needs to that needs to be consistent and unified and um, louder than it is right now. We're talking with Shabana Basij Rasik, co-founder and president of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan, a boarding school for girls based in Afghanistan. We're also talking with Joseph Azam, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonprofit organization working to raise awareness of the issues facing Afghanistan. Joseph is also a lawyer based in Oakland, California. You, our California listeners, are with us. Join us with your thoughts by posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When the Taliban came to power in August of 2021, they told the world that the status of women would be protected. The opposite has been true. And we're talking this hour about what is happening to women and girls in Afghanistan against a backdrop of a humanitarian crisis. Shabana Basij Rasik is co-founder and president of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan, a boarding school that has resettled temporarily in Rwanda, also a contributing opinion writer for the Washington Post. Joseph Azam is a lawyer based in Oakland and board chair of the Afghan American Foundation. You, our listeners, can post your thoughts on this on this conversation at 866-733-6786. That's the number to call. You can email them forum at kqed.org or you can... Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And let me go to Cedric in San Jose. Hi, Cedric. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. My question is, uh, how do we ensure that foreign aid is used to improve the quality of life of women and the people of Afghanistan and not used by the Taliban for military purposes? Thank you. Cedric, thanks. Uh, Joseph, what do you think? Look, I think Cedric asks a really important question, uh, and I'd say three things in response. One, um, we've done it before, right? There have been other areas of conflict where we've managed to figure out how to work with um, adverse or hostile governments to deliver aid to suffering people. And so the blueprint is there. Two, um, I I think at the end of the day, um, we need to improve people's confidence in the banking sector writ large in Afghanistan, right? And that can be done by the U.S. taking the lead, right? So what the U.S. does is what the world does to follow. And so the U.S. can do a lot uh, in leading the way and sort of, you know, starting the investment again. And third is to accept some level of risk. It is entirely possible that some percentage of funds that go into Afghanistan are going to get into the hands of the Taliban. For me personally, and many of us in our community and advocates for Afghanistan, that is a risk we are willing to accept if it means that there'll be a mitigation of harm and suffering to 40 million people. And so I think we can't let perfect be the enemy of good in this situation. And, And I think folks like Cedric who have this question, it comes from a good place. But, you know, they do need to accept the fact that um, we can't control everything. And all we can do is try to control um, our contributions to the mitigation of suffering. Well, the Zisner writes, this is so maddening and feels like Afghanistan is back to where it was in the 90s when the Taliban first came to power. What can we do thousands of miles away to help? You know, Joseph, some are saying it's worse than, than that time as people turn to things like the drug trade. Uh, there have been pieces about how increasingly uh, the people of Afghanistan feel like they have to turn to meth to be able to get money to feed their families. You talked about selling organs. Um, we're hearing about little children sifting through dangerous, explosive remnants of old wars. Can you just talk a little bit about what is actually different and, and why people are calling this moment Uh, a potentially even more destructive moment for the country of Afghanistan? 
Mina, I would say the biggest difference is that um, over the past decades, which have not been perfect, there has been a lot that has been built, right? Both in terms of physical infrastructure, in terms of the psyche of the Afghan people, in terms of the potential, right? Afghanistan has one of the youngest populations in the world. And the potential that's been built up in those folks is something that did not exist in the 90s or in the 80s when my family came here. So that's what's different. The stakes are higher. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot farther to fall, right? And they're falling a lot further in Afghanistan. That that to me is the most salient difference between this moment and the previous ones in Afghanistan. And the other thing I would add is that it really feels like the world might be close to walking away for good. And in the decades that many of us have been involved in this work uh, and in this geography, it's never felt this way before. And so there's a real sense of panic that this could be it. That Afghanistan could become a failed state, it could be run by a pariah government, and 40 million people, many of whom are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, are going to be left to pick up the pieces. And that has not happened before. Leah writes, what kind of moral space does the U.S. have regarding the Taliban's treatment of women when SCOTUS is preparing to enslave women with forced birth giving? Um, Shabana, you have talked about how the international community has expressed words of concern. You have talked about the fact that uh, the U.S. needs to be doing more with regard to how it tries to ensure that women's rights are not completely violated during this time. But can you talk about what incentive the Taliban has to change their policies since they walked back so many of their promises? Where do you see... I was earlier asking Joseph about levers associated with um, with the Taliban with regard to keeping its promises. But I, I want to know specifically if you have thoughts on those with regard to women and girls. Mm-hmm. Look, um, uh, Maria Krimi also alluded to this. Um, it, it's it's we are most certainly in a very difficult uh, position right now. You know, on, in the one hand, you see people. Um, suffering from starvation uh, you know there's a complete halt to economic activity um, people are really suffering um, and and uh, Taliban uh, seem to be uh, in an advantage right now uh, they they continue to press uh, and push and push the boundaries of uh, what what they do and they continue to roll back on uh, promises that they have made uh, without much of uh, a consequence um, to them. Um, and, and at the moment, they, they, they certainly think to uh, think that they can uh, get away with uh, what they are doing. So it is, it is, it is a difficult situation. Um, but um, what, what we cannot do is, or we cannot afford um, right now, is to look away. Um, you know, we all have to figure out what that means, um, what that means for the U.S. government, what that means for the Afghan diaspora community, what that means for and the international community in general, um, what that means for people inside Afghanistan for not giving up. Um, there will be different considerations, but but what I can uh, tell you is that um, looking away would be the most dangerous thing we can do right now. Um, I, you know, the U.S. may be tired of uh, Afghanistan or dealing with Afghan issues, um, but uh, so much of the Afghan issue is um the making of um, uh, the U.S. and the international community, the policies, the failed policies of the past uh, 20 years. 
Um, uh, there is a lot of responsibility on uh, on Afghans uh, ourselves, uh, the educated, uh, the the um, uh, you know the uh, corruption in the past twenty years alone has been uh, incredibly challenging in in bringing about positive change. Uh, but like Joseph mentioned, uh, we have we have had incredible gains in the past twenty year, uh, years alone all of which are worth saving. So in terms of what can be uh, leverage points, um, I can't really speak to um, uh, some of the details of, uh, you know, um, what may work, but um, one of the things that might be specific uh, pressure point is uh, the uh, waiver, which is, which is about to expire on um, Taliban's uh, travel. Um, uh, that should not be extended. Um, uh, if Taliban are uh, continuing to roll back uh, so much of what they had promised um, um, uh, the world um, in terms of uh, ensuring um, ac access to girls' education and women to work outside the home, um, th their travel um, ban should, the waiver on their travel ban should not be extended. And that, I believe, could be a good uh, pressure point for Taliban to understand um, that the, the international community, particularly the U.S., is really serious um, about uh, supporting uh, Afghan people, particularly Afghan girls and, and women. And what would you say, Joseph, is the U.S. responsibility to Afghan refugees here, especially in the U.S.? I think it's a tremendous responsibility, um, particularly because the U.S. was the entity that brought the almost 100,000 Afghans here. And so I think that there's an obligation um, by the government to ensure that they are resettled, that they are integrated, that they achieve permanent security and status. One of the issues right now that's tremendous and where we could really use help is around an Afghan Adjustment Act. We have you know, almost 80,000 people here who are here on humanitarian parole. That is a temporary status. That does not mean that they're permanent residents. That does not mean that they have a path to citizenship. And when that expires, technically, um, and they haven't and they haven't applied for an adjustment, they could be sent back to Afghanistan, and that is a a consequence. That is a result that I think defies logic, and so I think the obligation is tremendous. Um, we talk a lot about about what we owe to the Afghans in Afghanistan, and when you talk to veterans and other folks in the U.S., they really are passionate about that. But they're even more passionate about people who are now their friends and their neighbors. Right. And so I think it's, it's a tremendously heavy burden, but it is one that we have taken on by bringing these folks here and one we have to address. This listener writes, the guest mentioned that the Taliban's version of Islam is not the mainstream version. Could the guest talk about what Islam says about women's education? Does it say anything? Is it silent? Shabana, do you have a response to that? Uh, no, it's not silent. Uh, in in Islam, uh, it's very particularly mentioned that um, Muslim men and women uh, must get educated. Um, look, you know, this is what I mean by um, distractions. Um, you have many examples of uh, Muslim majority countries where uh, women are uh, thriving in in the public spaces. Um, you have uh, examples from Indonesia, from other parts of the world, even in, in Doha, um, you know, the country that facilitated the negotiations with the Taliban. You have uh, women who are receiving not only uh, education at a secondary school level, but higher level, but also are uh, prominent uh, government officials. Um, you know, the assistant uh, foreign minister 
um, uh, in in uh, Qatar is uh, is a woman um, leading a lot of these conversations with the Taliban, with the U.S. Um, and the rest of the international community when it comes to Afghanistan. Um, so this is this is what I meant earlier that the uh, voice. Uh, from the Muslim-majority countries need to be uh, more unified and louder um, to really take away this excuse from Taliban that they're using religion um, against uh, people in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban need to recognize that um, Islam existed in Afghanistan well before uh, they emerged as a group, that people were and are uh, practicing Muslims um, and that they are in no position to be teaching um, Afghans about Islam and the religion, um, and, and that they need to recognize that their interpretation, their really strict and radical interpretation of Islam uh, they tried, did not uh, take a hold uh, in, in the 90s, and um, after these last 20 years where Afghan people have uh, had far more access to education to the world outside of Afghanistan. Uh, it, it stands no chance. Uh, what it what it does in the in the meantime is that it will put um, forty million people through really really difficult uh, circumstances. Um, but I don't see how Taliban have a chance at mainstreaming um, their version of Islam in Afghanistan. I'll tell you a quick uh, story. Um, that will drive this point home. Uh, right uh, in July, when the Taliban issued a decree that um, in Afghanistan, uh, Afghan families who have daughters um, over the age of 15 uh, uh, and are not married, they should be married after a Taliban soldier when, once they take over Afghanistan. Um, that news really uh, traveled across the country um, quite quickly. Um, as you can imagine, families who uh, do have unmarried daughters at home were incredibly uh, concerned and frightened uh, by this uh, decree. Um, uh, the following day, um, this was in July of 2021, two of my colleagues uh, came to my office um, wanting to talk to me about this decree and the conversation they had at home. Uh, one of them told me uh, that she and her husband decided um, uh, this couple um, have a daughter uh, who's um, 17 years old. Um, and they, she told me that they decided um, that uh, they will uh, purchase poison. And the, the day the Taliban take over, um, they will poison their daughter. Um, now, imagine, imagine a family in Afghanistan taking such a... Or, at least talking about uh, taking such a drastic measure. Um, in this story, you hear um, an unbelievably heartbreaking uh, family's decision, but also an incredible um, statement of defiance that there is no chance they will allow their daughter to marry a Taliban soldier. Um, and, and this sentiment is uh, especially true uh, for a lot of Afghans. Um, across the country, um, they do not accept Taliban. And so if Taliban uh, honestly want to have a chance um, at existence uh, as a political entity, um, they really need to appeal to uh, the Afghan public. They must respect girls' rights to education, women's rights to the public space. They must respect um, that Afghanistan is home to 
um, a um, very diverse uh, group of uh, people um, beyond uh, Pashtuns, that there are Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazaras and Baluchis and Arabs um, and Sunnis and Shias, and that Afghans have coexisted before and will. And Taliban need to respect that and honor that to have a chance at uh, legitimacy. Um, they need to seek their legitimacy from Afghan people, especially Afghan girls and women, first before they have a chance at international recognition. Hmm. Shabana Basij Rasak, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A couple of final listener points here, maybe Joseph, to you. The listener writes, shouldn't we be concerned that there are 40 million people who are not only starving, but half will not be well-educated, and the other half is going to be brought up to control their sisters, mothers, grandmothers, and aunts? Beyond the moral reasons to assist, a nation-state like this is a danger to the international community. Another listener writes, my understanding is that the U.S. went into Afghanistan to stop terrorism. Is there any concern that a Taliban-led government, without international aid and with a foundering economy, will turn to players who will pay them to turn a blind eye to hosting terrorist operations in the country? Joseph, your reactions to these sentiments and concerns? Sure. With regard to the first, absolutely. It is absolutely the case that half the Afghan population is currently being erased and the other half is being conditioned to accept that. And so without question, that is one of the most urgent and horrific things that's happening. And I want to name what um, Shamana was talking about when she was talking about some of the things that women and girls are dealing with. We talk in generalities about the Taliban, but what we're talking about is rape. What we're talking about is torture. What we're talking about are war crimes. So with regard to the first question, it's deeply problematic and it needs to be prioritized. With regard to the security question, also yes. The Taliban has demonstrated a complete ineptitude in maintaining security for the Afghan people. ISIS is operating freely. There are sects of the Taliban that are going to be probably infighting and, and engaging in violence. And most of us see this as sort of a precursor to a hotbed of extremism and potentially terrorism developing in that sort of environment because it's happened before. And so there's absolutely a strategic value in ensuring that Afghanistan does not become a failed state and that the Afghan people don't lose hope in the ability to control their own fate. Because when they do, history has taught us that they will turn to the types of extremism and desperation that the rest of the world will have to reckon with. Joseph Azam, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, Shabana Basij Rasak, co-founder and president of SOLA, the School of Leadership, Afghanistan, a boarding school for girls. My thanks to both of you for your efforts to force us to look at Afghanistan. My thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, and participation. And my thanks to Grace Wan for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.